Well, the last two Sundays have been a bit heady, haven't they? Yeah. And we're going to do it again this morning. So if you got your thinking caps on, I, I really wanted to just finish off what we were talking about um, for the last two Sundays. And if you, this is your first Sunday here since we started this little mini-series. It was the war between Israel and Hamas that kicked off the mini-series. And uh, the, everything that was coming up in people's minds and hearts, uh, the questions that I was getting, the comments that I was getting... It was one of those things kind of like in 2020 when the pandemic was just starting and everything seemed to be uh, blowing up around us that uh, we needed to dive into current events, but in our own effect way, not so that we can discuss or debate the issues themselves because there is no real solution in the macro that we can affect. But in terms of how do we form a personal response how do we form a personal response to the events that are taking place? That's what we're looking for, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, last week, or two weeks ago, we did a 4,000-year history flyby. <laughs> 4,000 years in about 45 minutes. And um, what we were trying to do was to get a sense, how did we get here? What are these intractable issues, and how did they come to be? And we learned that the last 100 years since World War I really told the tale on that. But we had a chance to go through that history and try to understand more what are the claims on the land? Who has the claims on the land? Everybody's got a claim on the land and so on and so forth. And then after that, there were more uh, comments and questions that hit me. And they kind of fell in three categories. And the first one was ethical. The second one was emotional. And the third one was speculative. And last week, we handled the first two the ethical and the emotional. So if you're here, you know you got a little bit of an ethics uh, lesson, you know, kind of college-level ethics. And we talked about categorical, can't even say it, categorical imperatives, you know, the Immanuel Kant thing, where basically that there are these universal laws, these are universal duties that are always morally right, no matter when, no matter what, in any situation. And then that contrasted with utilitarianism, where the right thing to do is the thing that brings the greatest good to the greatest number of people. And then that contrasted with virtue ethics, where we look at what that virtuous position is. Who is that most virtual agent? And what would they do? And how does that reflect on our character? And what would our ideal character look like if we were doing these virtuous things? And so we kind of shorthanded that with WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? What would he do in, those situ in any situation that we find ourselves? And then looking at that and trying to model ourselves, that would be virtue ethics. And so you got all three of these major categories of philosophical ethics. And we probably need all three to continue to regulate and limit the excesses of each one of them that's possible. But then we started talking about how does this fit into the emotionals and the emotions and the emotional reactions that we're having to the war and to anything that seems to be going around us. How do we regulate our emotions? And again, going back to what would Jesus do, we looked at Jesus when his friend Lazarus was dying and what he did in response to that. That was real bad news coming to him from a remote location. But even then, he didn't rush to his side. He waited two more days doing what he was doing. And when he did arrive, he had two very different responses to the two sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary. 
Martha was the intellectual. Martha was a practical one, and he had an intellectual and theological conversation with her because he knew that's what she needed. But when he meets with Mary, he simply weeps with her because that's what she needed. This ability to be purely and completely present to a person, to a situation, is what Jesus does all the time. I doubt that Jesus is thinking through any of the uh, you know, 18th and 19th century philosophical ideas of ethics. But what Jesus was always doing was asking the question, what does love require in this particular situation? What does love require? But in order to ask that question and get an answer, you have to be completely present to find out what is going on. What does the person in front of you really need? And so even as we go through these emotional reactions to things that are ha were happening half a world away, the way they affect us right here and now, if we will continue to connect, if we will immerse ourselves in the presence around us, we can still answer the question for ourselves right here and now, what does love require? And if we think love requires us to go out on a street corner with a placard and pick it, then that's what we do. And if it just means to weep with someone, that's what we do. And anything in between. But until and unless we can be fully present and connected, we're not going to know what that is. And we can just as easily be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So we tried to go through that because, once again, what the effect is all about is micro. What the effect is all about is preparing ourselves to have these emotional responses that can take us further and further into what Jesus calls kingdom, into that quality of life that is connected and is abundant. And so today what I wanted to dive into was the speculative. And what do I mean by that? Well, we're hearing a lot more about what is predicted for the future in the media and everywhere, it seems. And whenever something ramps up like this, it seems like everybody comes out of the woodwork. And especially if it has something to do with Israel, and especially under these circumstances, there are lots of players coming out of the woodwork to make all sorts of predictions about what is going to happen, especially with reference to the end times. And we're going to get into that as well. And remember, we're not going to be discussing or debating the issues themselves, but a way of arriving at a personal response that allows us to do what Jesus would do. Okay, I had one person ask me, and, and I love this question. That was actually a series of questions. And she wasn't really even expecting an answer from me. It was kind of a rhetorical question going out to the universe. But she wanted to know, do we need to buy gold? <laughs> you know? How is the money system going to change? Is the money system going to change? Are the banks safe? You know, all these practical questions, because when we look at the chaos that things are moving into, hey, that's a real concern, right? And like I said, she wasn't looking to me for financial advice, but she's saying these are the questions that are popping up in her mind. And then I had another person say, you know, why are people getting so wrapped up in religious and ideological narratives? All of this stuff that's floating around. And often, the people that are floating the narratives are even weaponizing those narratives against the people in order to manipulate them, to cause a reaction that they want for some reason. You know, follow the money, right? Who benefits if things go a certain way? Why are people getting so wrapped up in these? Why are we becoming affected by all these things that sometimes are pretty clearly manipulation, 
And this has to do with end times prophecy, for sure. Also has to do with geopolitical issues. It has to do with economic issues, ecological issues. All these speculations about all these areas are rampant right now. Why is that? What's happening? People are afraid. That's what's happening. People are afraid. People are worried. People are feeling vulnerable. They're feeling uncertain. The more we watch on the news, the more we feel all of those things. And we're looking for answers. We're looking for certainty. That's what we really want. The more afraid you get, the more you're going to crave certainty. You want something solid. You want something as close to a mathematical formula as possible. This plus this equals exactly what I'm looking for. I want to know that. So if there's a market, right, for something, then there's going to be salesmen. That's all there is to it. Anyone who tells you that they have answers, anyone who tells you that they have certainty, they're selling something. Just know that. It's like night follows day. What are they selling? Well, they're selling gold, right? They're selling books. They're selling tickets to some this or that or the other podcast or webinar or whatever it happens to be. Maybe they're selling supplements, dietary supplements. It can be anything. And it's not that those things can't be good. Many of them are very good and good advice in any climate, right? But they're never certain. They're not going to bring certainty. They're not going to bring a certain result. So how should we be looking at this? Let's take a look at what Jesus would say. Let's take a look at what Jesus did say at Mark 13, starting right at verse 1. And uh, did you get that up? Um, get that note? Okay, so he's going to put it up because it's not in your notes this morning. This is uh, Jesus in Mark 13, who is at the temple in Jerusalem. And as he was going out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Could you imagine what it was like for these rural people, these back of beyonders, to come into the big city and see this incredible structure that Herod the Great had built? It was just amazing. Gilded with gold, white, shining marble. I mean, it must have been just absolutely awe-inspiring. But Jesus says to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, and he says, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Natural questions to ask, right? Don't we all want to know? Obviously, obviously. And what Jesus is clearly talking about, because he spends the next several passages painting this completely cataclysmic picture that actually came to pass in 70 AD when the Romans rolled in and took Jerusalem, destroyed everything, and absolutely destroyed the temple. There's a story that I heard, and you never know if these stories are true, but it's a pretty good one, that when they burned the temple, I mean, we're talking about stone here that doesn't really burn, but when they burned the temple, all of that gold melted and fell into the cracks and the crevices between the stones. So they pulled every single stone down to get at the gold. Is that true? I don't know. It's a good story, though. But the truth of the matter is the temple was raised to the ground under Titus in 70 AD. And Jesus is talking about this clearly because this is exactly what happened. 
And so when we look at these kind of prophecies in the Bible, whether it's Jesus or one of the Old Testament prophets or whomever, John in Revelation, there are basically three ways that we can look at this. There's actually four, but the fourth one doesn't really deal with us right now, so I'm going to try to keep this less confusing. You can be an idealist about this and practice idealism in terms of looking at end times prophecy or any prophecy. What does an idealist do? An idealist is going to look at the prophecy as symbolic, not literal. So that's one way of dealing with this. And then you don't have to deal with all of the literal implications. It's symbolic. It's going to be spiritual. You can be a preterist. What's a preterist? Well, it comes from the, uh, the word for the past. A preterist believes that all the prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled in the generation to which the prophecy was uttered. And so there is no end times now valence to any of this. And we shouldn't be looking for anything in the future. And then you have a futurist. Pretty obvious what that one is. Either whole or in part, a futurist believes that there are parts of the prophecy or all of the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled and we're still looking forward to it. So these are the different ways that we can look at these kind of prophecies. However we believe, whatever you choose, wherever you come down, that's up to you because there is no one right way to do this. Christianity has proven that because Christians come down on all sides of this. After describing these cataclysmic events, Jesus concludes with these words, starting at verse 28, still in Mark 13. He says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, all the things that he talked about that we didn't read just now, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's pretty clear. Jesus is being a preterist here, right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. Why do we keep asking when? Why do people keep predicting when? Jesus couldn't be clearer here, more adamant and emphatic here. We can't know. We can know the general season. We can see that things are coming to a head. Hey, all we have to do is watch the news, read the papers. We can see that everything is coming to a head in our world, in our country, in our state. Things can't keep going the way they are. Something has to give. We know that. Is that going to be gentle or is that going to be cataclysmic? We can't know that. But what we can't know is the day or the hour. There is no certainty. In our fear, we crave certainty, but there isn't any. We've got to get over that. We've got to deal with that. We've got to make friends with that. If we're ever going to live life successfully, if we're ever going to live life in the kingdom that Jesus is trying to move us into. But uncertainty plus these terrifying images that we see around us or read in the scriptures, they equal fear. And the fear is real. But the fear is not only because we have an uncertainty about the timing. It's about the events themselves as well. Now, end time teachers, these are all the ones that you're hearing on podcasts and, and whatnot, the ones that are teaching about end times speak as if their interpretation of the books, Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel, are absolutely certain. 
Whatever it is that they have come to in their interpretation, they act as if it's absolute, monolithic, certain. But are they really? You know, the end time sequence that evangelicals are usually practicing and understanding actually form a minority in Christian thought. In all the branches and denominations, this futurist viewpoint is a minority. Basically, it belongs to non-denominational Bible teaching churches. It belongs to the Baptists, the Pentecostals, and the Charismatics. Those type of churches usually have what is called a dispensational or a futuristic view. But who does that leave? Oh, everybody else. I mean, Protestantism itself is a broad tent, a big tent. You have all the mainline denominations, the Lutherans and, and the Reforms and the, and the Methodists and, and so on and so forth. All of those are still there. They don't hold to this type of thinking. The Catholics certainly don't. The Catholics are amillennialists. They're not even looking at any kind of millennial activity. And Eastern Orthodox as well. Three main branches of Christianity. Only one and a subset of that adheres to these kinds of thoughts. So is it right? Is it just a given that these end time scenarios that we are typically familiar with are absolutely true? Not only that, these ideas were only formulated in about the 1830s as we understand them today. And they were dependent on both a futuristic and also a dispensational belief system. What are those? Let me just dig in here just a little bit, see if we can understand not so much the details, but the broader strokes, just so you can know what it is that we're dealing with when we talk about these end times. Remember, we've got the idealistic idea, which is symbolic. We've got the preterist idea, which is that everything is already fulfilled. And then the futurist idea, which is that all or some of the scriptural apocalyptic and prophetic passages are yet to come. So the futuristic view sees everything beginning, and this is dealing with Revelation specifically because it's the main one we get our information from. The futuristic view sees everything beginning with chapter 4 of Revelation and onward to the rest of the book as yet to be fulfilled in our future. They divide the book into three sections based on Revelation 1.19. This is where Jesus turns and says to, to John in his vision, write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Those three divisions, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. They believe that chapter 1 describes the past first, what you have seen in chapters 1. In chapters 2 and 3, Revelation describes the present, what is now. And the rest of the book describes future events, what will take place after. So chapter 4, 1 is talking about the rapture of the church to heaven. And if you're familiar with the word rapture, it means that everyone is going to be lifted up at a certain point. This is where all the movies come from, the left behind books and the movies where people just disappear. You know, We have no idea how it would happen, but the idea is that the church is going to be taken out because God cannot complete his plan with Israel until the church is gone. It's the idea of the dispensationalist. Chapter 4 through 19 refer to a period known as the seven-year tribulation, which comes from Daniel 9.27. Interestingly, in Daniel 9, though, it is referred to as a week, seven days, but that translates into seven years when it gets to 
the dispensational idea of what's happening in Revelation. During this time, God's judgments are poured out upon mankind as they are revealed in the seals and trumpets and bowls, which may not make any sense to you unless you've read the book. Chapter 13 describes a literal future world empire headed by a political leader called the Antichrist, which is pictured as a beast. Chapter 19 refers to Christ's second coming and the battle of Armageddon. And this is followed by a literal thousand-year rule of Christ upon the earth in chapter 20. Chapters 21 to 22 are events that follow the millennium, that thousand-year period. The creation of a new heaven and a new earth and the arrival of the heavenly city upon the earth, the new Jerusalem. This futurist system of belief arose to prominence in the 1830s with a Irish-English pastor and theologian named John Nelson Darby, and believes the church will be raptured from the earth at the beginning of chapter 4 and will not be on the earth during the seven-year Great Tribulation. Often termed dispensationalism, it is a system of belief founded upon certain guiding beliefs and is widely popular among evangelical Christians today. So what are the key teachings of dispensationalism? First of all, what's a dispensation? Well, a dispensation is a system of order, a system of government, some sort of system of organization that is applied to a given group of people. Dispensationalists believe that there are anywhere from seven to nine different dispensations, from Adam and Eve to Moses and so on and so forth. And in each one of those dispensations, God deals differently with the people. There's a different covenant. There's a different system, a different way that God deals with it. But the two main distinctions that we need to deal with first in dispensationalism is Israel and the church. Dispensationalists believe that God deals differently with Israel and differently with the church, and you have to keep those two separate. So a distinction or a different dispensation between two covenant people, Israel and the church, is essential. God set aside Israel to work through the church, but will one day restore Israel and his covenant with them to fulfill to them all of the unfulfilled Old Testament promises. Secondly, the dispensational view is dependent upon a literal interpretation of apocalyptic texts and an interpretation of Daniel 9 that sees a gap in Daniel's prophecy. And that gap lasts for a thousand years and postpones those last seven years, that tribulation period, for thousands of years into the future. There has to be a gap there. And so they see that gap. Three, the church will be taken up from the earth prior to a seven-year tribulation called a pre-tribulational rapture. But <laughs> dispensationalists don't all agree that the church will be taken up pre-rapture. Some say it'll be mid-rapture, right in the middle of that seven-year period, and some say it's post-rapture. So a lot of disagreement here in terms of the interpretation. And that is to remove the church from the earth in order for God to complete his covenant with Israel and to restore the nation of Israel. Fourth, the kingdom of, of God was delayed. The Jews rejected Jesus' offer of the kingdom, so the offer was withdrawn from Israel and given to the church. And Jesus will physically, though, return to earth and set up a thousand-year kingdom to reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. That won't include the church because the church is already gone, right? This is going to be everybody else. And of course, this means that dispensationalists see the kingdom as a literal kingdom, a physical and political kingdom on the earth. Last, Israel must rebuild the temple reinstate the priesthood, and reinstitute animal sacrifices. How in the world is that going to happen? 
Not anytime soon. And if it did, it's going to be cataclysmic if the Jews are able to do something like that in Jerusalem. The Antichrist will make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, but break it in the middle of the tribulation when he walks into the temple and causes the sacrifices to cease. I want to read this last paragraph, which is critical views of dispensationalism and futurism, and uh, just kind of kind of flow with it. Um, they're not ter- terribly biased. I think they're fairly accurate, but here, here goes. The complete system of dispensationalism is a relatively new system of belief with views not held throughout the history of the church. For instance, the gap in Daniel's prophecy, the rapture, the modern restoration of Israel, all new stuff. This view renders the book mostly irrelevant to the original audience, that first century audience, since it was not to be fulfilled for thousands of years in the future. And it also renders most of the book irrelevant to modern Christians, so then, since they will not be on earth during these events. This view demands a revival of many first century realities, the restoration of Israel, the rebuilt temple, reinstituted priesthood and sacrifices, a revived Roman Empire, and a world ruler. It also overemphasizes the importance of national Israel in God's plan and underemphasizes the importance of the church. While an emphasis is placed on a literal interpretation, it fails to recognize the symbolic character of apocalyptic literature. This view lends more toward prophetic speculation than prophetic interpretation, affectionately called newspaper exegesis. Kind of like that one. To exegesis means to pull meaning out, as opposed to eisegesis, which is putting meaning in. So newspaper exegesis is this marrying of the uh, prophecies as they are understood and interpreted, interpreted to what's happening currently in current events. Historically, doing that, comparing prophecy with current events, has been disastrous. So as I read that, you probably realize that my bias is kind of showing here, right? To tell you the truth, I was a complete futurist. I was a complete dispensationalist in the 90s. Remember the 90s? That crazy time with the the run-up to the change of the millennium and everything that was going on, the X-Files. I mean, good grief. We had all of this stuff going on. And I was just so a part of all of this. And looking toward the change of the millennium as some big revelation. We were all waiting for Y2K and what was going to happen there. I was so into this stuff, spending so much time studying all this stuff. And then Y2 came and went without even a whimper. And that began the process of my deconstruction because I realized, what in the world am I doing? Spending all this time for stuff and what? You know? And, and all my heroes, the people that, that uh, I was following at the time, you know, they just kind of went silent for a little while and then came back rebranded and started over again, but not with me. You know, I had to t- come at a different way of processing my spirituality and my faith that m- made some sort of sense. You know? Even so, I want to be clear. You know, I, I, what I just read is pretty accurate in terms of what dispensationalists and futurists believe. You, know, you can choose whatever you want to choose in terms of what you believe. At this point, I'm pretty much agnostic. I said that last time, I think. Um, I don't know what it is that, that we're looking at when we look at the apocalyptic prophecies. When you look at futurism, when you look at dispensationalism, and it reads like science fiction, it reads like, like fantasy writing, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. And I want to emphasize that. I'm not making a categorical statement here about what is or isn't true. But what I want to emphasize 
even if it is true, right now, not knowing the day or the hour or whether this is certainly true, how helpful is it? That's what I want to focus on. What is helpful for us to be able to live as Jesus lived and as he is teaching us to live is a focus on this material through the lens of dispensationalism or futurism helpful to us? Because I'll tell you what, most of the people that I have met, most of the people that I have read who are really studying this and into this are all fear-based. They have a bunker mentality. They're trying to find ways to survive. They are buying the gold, and they're doing all the things that they can do in order to survive. But is that the way that we're supposed to live? Is that the way Jesus lived? I mean, think about the abundant living that Jesus talked about, where everything just was laid out. He never held anything back. And this is one thing that I'm absolutely certain of, and I did say this last week, I believe, that any interpretation of Scripture that causes us to live in fear is a wrong interpretation. Whether you come to the scriptures dispensationally, whether you live in fear or not, is really the key, not the belief in dispensationalism. If you believe in dispensationalism and you can live without the fear, if you can still live an expansive life and an other-centered life, then beautiful. There's nothing broke. Don't fix it. It's not the belief itself. It's what it causes in us. And I believe that's what Jesus said. You want to know the tree? You know the tree by the fruit. So it's kind of a utilitarian view, I guess, that Jesus is talking about here, even without using the word. Any interpretation of Scripture that causes us to live in fear is wrong. As people who are fearful, we're going to be focused on the what? We're going to be focused on the specifics. We're going to be focused on trying to gain certainty. But God is focused on how, not what. He's focused on how the quality of life that we live and the quality of the actions that we take, how we live, not what we know is of ultimate importance to God. And any interpretation, any good interpretation of Scripture that we formulate should funnel us toward God's how, that living in hope and living in gratitude If our belief system, if our interpretation is funneling us there, amen. Beautiful. But what is the purpose of prophetic and apocalyptic literature anyway? We know that it's highly figurative. We know that it's highly poetic. And in both genres, the prophet, who is either writing or speaking, speaks for God. That is the prophet's function. Any foretelling of future events that a prophet does is incidental. What the prophet is doing is speaking for God, guiding the people, encouraging the people in how to live. It wasn't about foretelling the future. If that helped guide them and encourage them, great. You're, gonna, you're hitting off a cliff here. It would be good for you to change directions. But it wasn't about the foretelling that really was the, the essence of the prophet. It's speaking for God. And so in prophetic passages, the prophet comes before the event that is going to take place, the cataclysmic event. And the prophet is there to warn, to correct, to to encourage repentance, changing of direction, to avert the disaster that is coming. And it's always pointed in the life of the present generation. It is for that people 
And Jews believe that any prophet whose prophecy did not come true in the life of the generation to which it was uttered was a false prophet. So they were all preterists. Apocalyptic literature comes after the event. When no one listens to the prophets and you end up falling into the cliff, off the cliff, then, standing in your smoking crater, comes the apocalyptic literature. And what is it there for? The worst has already happened. The unthinkable has happened. Life as you know it doesn't exist anymore. Where is God in all of this? All the questions that we're always going to ask, right? How did God allow this to happen? What about all God's promises? Are they still valid? What now? The apocalyptic literature is there to encourage patience in the people and continued trust in God's promise and restoration that God's promises won't come back void. That is the nature of apocalyptic literature. Why all the crazy imagery? Well, when you're standing in the smoking crater that used to be your nation and your life, this is where you're at. You have these horrific images already. They are mirroring those. And plus, they're speaking in code. Because typically, after the unthinkable event, you now have a foreign occupier who has their boot against your neck. And you can't speak openly. And so these were coded in imagery that the people would understand, but the foreign power would not. All right? Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all occurred before and after the two great cataclysmic events when Jews, when the Jewish nation was, was first formed around 1,000. And so you have the Old Testament prophets coming right before the fall of Israel in the 8th century BCE, and then again right before the fall of Judah in the 6th century BCE. And then you have Ezekiel and Daniel coming after those events had taken place. Those are the apocalyptic prophets. And then fast forward to the New Testament, you got John of the Baptist, John the Baptist coming, the last of the Old Testament prophets, right? And then you have Jesus himself, that Olivet Discourse that we just read a portion of. You have Revelation. All of those are clustered before and after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 CE. So we see that this literature, the prophets come before, the apocalyptics come after. And apocalypse, it just means an unveiling. It just means a revelation. Revelation, the book of Revelation literally means Revelation. It means unveiling. It means apocalypse. It's all the same word. Revealing the things that are unseen, the things that we can't see about God's promises being restored. So these genres are showing us first how to avoid the disaster, maybe personally and certainly nationally, but then also how to live in the midst of the disaster. How do we do that? How do we continue to live in trust and in hope and gratitude and God's presence regardless of circumstances? This is the purpose of these two genres of sacred literature. I want to introduce to you one overarching metaphor and the way that I now like to look at these prophetic and apocalyptic passages. There's one overarching metaphor, both prominent in the Old Testament and the New Testament that is used to describe how, God's how, the nature of human experience. What is it like to live here as human beings? And that is a Jewish wedding tradition. And I've talked to you about this before, but I think it's good to bring it back. 
A wedding in Jew, ancient Jewish life was one of the biggest events that could take place in your town, in your village. It was huge. It involved pretty much everybody who was in the town because everybody was kind of related to everybody else. And so it was this big deal. You didn't have TV. You didn't have Disneyland. These were like the great party events, and they lasted for an entire week. So you had people over at your house for a week. Imagine that, right? So it was a major community event, and everyone was intimately familiar with every aspect of the Jewish wedding tradition. And so it was a rich place. Notice Jesus always uses metaphors that come right out of the people's experience, usually having to do with planting and, and, the, and the weather and this and that. The wedding ceremony is the same thing, but it extends back through the Old Testament as well. The Jewish wedding tradition is really a metaphor for human life, the way we all live, the way we experience life. Israel was understood as the bride of Yahweh for this reason. The church was understood as the bride of Christ for the same reason. There were two parts to the Jewish wedding tradition. The first part was called the Kedushin. The Kedushin was the betrothal, but it wasn't just a betrothal like us. You want to marry me? Please marry me, and I give you a ring. No, this was binding. This was part of the, the community experience. It was public. And once you were betrothed, you would still need a get of divorce in order to break that betrothal. But the wedding ceremony did not take place, and the marriage was not consummated, sometimes for a year to two years and so there was this space in between the betrothal and the wedding ceremony, the Nisuin itself. Why did they do that? You know, well, there's probably lots of reasons, but one of the main reasons is it was kind of a pregnancy test, to be real honest about it. You know, these were young girls who were being married at the age of two, 12, 13 sometimes. But a prospective husband wanted to know that any child born to him from this girl was his. And so one way to do that is to wait at least nine months to make sure that nothing's going on until the wedding is consummated. It was part of their tradition for this. The imagery from the wedding ceremony alluded to these apocalyptic passages. And now you can look at your notes if you'd like to in the, that are in your bulletins. Just really quickly, just want to go through this, not spend a lot of time with it, but what I want to do is to see if you can start to see how the imagery of the parts of the wedding tradition itself match up to the imagery of these prophetic and apocalyptic passages that are used to create the end time scenario that we know today. So first of all, you've got the Kedushin, you've got the betrothal. In that day, marriages were arranged Often, bride and groom did not even meet each other until the day of their betrothal. And the groom would travel from his father's house because boys always stayed with their, with their father's house. It was the girls that moved from their father's house to the groom's house. And so you, you never got a son-in-law. You would only get a daughter-in-law. Kind of worked that way, right? So the groom would travel from his father's house to the father's house of his bride. And he would bring with him at least two things. One was a ketubah, which was the contract, and the other was a mohar, which was the dowry, which was the, the, the price that would be paid from the father of the groom to the father of the bride. Why did he do that? Well, the father of the bride is losing this girl's labor in his household, and this is the way that he was repaid for losing that labor of her life 
and he was the uh, father of the groom, is gaining it. And so he had the ketubah, the contract, and the mahar. Now the ketubah is interesting because it was a contract that was meant to protect the woman, to protect the bride. We've gone over this, you know. Women had a really tough time in the ancient world. They didn't have a lot of rights. And so this contract was guaranteeing in writing to the woman, to the girl, that she would be cared for, she would be clothed and protected and fed and loved, not only during the marriage itself, but after her, her husband's eventual death, she would still be cared for with some kind of, of plan, or in terms of divorce, that she would also be cared for. And so this contract protected the bride. Important to keep that in mind. Because the Jews understood the law, the Torah, even the law and the prophets of their scriptures, to be a kind of wedding ring, a ketubah in itself, a contract for God, from God to them as the bride, which protected them and guaranteed their well-being. That's how they saw it. So when you see Jesus at Matthew 5.17 saying, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill He's talking about this. That contract, that wedding ring is still intact. You can still count on God to protect you. I'm not here to tear that down. It may look like it because of the way I operate, but I'm here to actually fulfill it in love and not just in legal code. There's a connection there. During the course of the betrothal, the bride and the groom would drink a first cup of wine called the Kedush. That would seal the betrothal, and they would not drink a second cup of wine again until that time, that one to two year period when the bride would come, the groom would come back, take his bride to his father's house, and they'd complete the wedding ceremony, and they would drink a second cup. But look at what Jesus says at Matthew 26, verse 27. This is during the Last Supper. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, they would have understood. They would have connected those dots because they knew what that meant. The first and the second cup, one at the betrothal, the other at the completion and the consummation of of the marriage, of everything. Beautiful. And the, the mohar, the price, the dowry, the church understands that as Jesus' death on the cross. That was the price. His blood was the price that he gave for us to be able to be reconciled with the Father. When the groom is done with all the betrothal activities and he's ready to leave, he's going to go back to his father's house. He gives what's called the tenayim. The tenayim is the promise that he's going to return They've done all this now. He's going to come back and claim his bride. It may not be for a while, but he's coming back and he promises. And then Jesus says at John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This was the task of the groom when he returns to his father's house, is to build an apartment, 
build the Hadar, as they, uh, as they termed it. The Hadar was where he and his, his bride were going to live. That was the add-on to the, the, the house, the estate, where they were going to live out their lives as part of their father's estate. Jesus is telling them this. This is where I'm going. They're, they're, they're afraid out of their minds that he's telling them he's going to leave. But he's giving them the tenayim. He's giving them the promise that he's going to come back. And while he's gone, he's preparing this place. He's using this imagery to let them know that they are not left orphans. They are not forlorn. They are not abandoned. And understanding it in terms that they would understand because of the strength, the, the, the intimacy with these traditions. And then the Nisuin, literally the raising up. Because when the groom comes back to claim his bride, they actually raise her up on a, on a litter. You know, you always seen Cleopatra carried around. They would have one of those things, and they would literally carry her back. The grooms would carry her back all the way so that she was raised up. It's today in, in Jewish uh, weddings, you see them putting the bride, and they do the groom too. It was only the bride back in the day. But they put them on chairs and they raise them up on chairs and they carry them around the room, symbolically raising them up. But that's what the Nisuin means. It's this raising up. So the groom is going to return typically in the middle of the night. He's going to show up with his entourage of groomsmen on the, on the edges of the villages. And they're going to shout and they're going to blow shofar, which are hollowed out ram's horns, what they would blow like trumpets. And they will wake up the entire village, obviously. But this is where the fun begins because all the, the, uh, the what would you call them? The uh, brides, what are they called? Bridesmaids, thank you. Just went right out of my head. All the little girls, 12, 13, 14 years old, because that's the age of all her friends, they would run and squeal and laugh. You can imagine what's going on. And they'd get their lamps, and they would run to where the groom was and literally light his way with their lamps all the way back to the bride's home. And this, again, tells you about, remember the story of the, the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise? Some didn't have didn't care for their lamps, didn't keep them trimmed, didn't have oil, and the others that did. This is alluding, again, to this practice. And so the, the, the bridesmaids go out, they light the way, the groom comes down, and as he approaches the father's house, the father would ceremonially turn his head, and they would snatch up the bride. And they would use, they use that word, to snatch up. You know, The word is raptus in, in Latin, the word that we use for raptor, birds of prey that snatch their prey. It's the word that we get rapture from, it's to be snatched up. They would snatch her up, they would raise her up, and they would carry her to the Father's house. Take a look at First, Thessalon First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You notice the imagery there? coming to the edge of the village and shouting and blowing the trumpet. The, uh, the, the word there, lapidim, also refers to both lightning and a lighting of a lamp. And so there is that connection in Matthew 24. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so you see the same imagery being used there. And this snatching of the bride in the middle of the night caught up 1 Thessalonians 4:17 Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord which is a primary verse that was used by Darby 
in the 18th century, 19th century, um, for the rapture. Was it meant to be literal? Was it meant to be symbolic? Was it meant to be an allusion to the wedding feast so that they understood that they are not going to be forgotten? That's up for you to decide. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. John 6:43. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then when the bride gets to the Father's house and the marriage ceremony itself begins, there is what is called the Hadar. The Hadar was an actual tent at the time, which was adjacent, I'm sorry, the Chuppah. It was adjacent to the Hadar. Today in Jewish ceremonies, they still have a chuppah, which is usually just kind of a canopy that's raised up on poles under which uh, the bride and the groom stand. But it was the same idea here. So they would enter the chuppah, and eventually after the ceremony, they would retire to the hadar and consummate their wedding. Revelation 21, starting at verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Tabernacle, same idea, the hadar, right? And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In the chuppah, in the chadar, everything is completed. Everything is consummated. A new life together is beginning, and a new family is beginning. All of these illusions are present there. And then at verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And so here is this whole new city of Jerusalem, this ultimate Hadar coming down to be on the earth and be the seat of this thousand-year reign and rule. You know, it's not important to remember all of these passages, but it is important, I hope, for you to see the pattern here. What's going on here? To see the conscious use of metaphor here, not just in the book of Revelation, but throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament as well, that they understood themselves as the bride. So important for us to see that. Why? Why is this overarching metaphor so important? Because all human history, all of it, all of our lives individually are lived between the Kedushin and the Nisuin. Our whole lives are lived in that space that the bride lives between her betrothal and her wedding ceremony because all our lives are lived between heaven and earth, between the place of oneness and unity in heaven and the place of individual form and function on earth. This is where we live. How are we to live here? How are we to live in good and bad times? We're supposed to be living this is telling us as a Hebrew bride lives between her Kedushin and her Nisuin, balancing anticipation of her new life 
with the awareness and presence of this life right here and right now. It may be that this young girl never sees her family of origin again. If she was moving far away, she may not come back. And she wouldn't be living there anymore. She needs to really drink in everything and every relationship, even as she anticipates the new life and her own family. It's a balancing of now and not yet. Can we work for the not yet? Can we look toward the not yet with anticipation, with excitement even, but not ever let it obliterate the presence of being right here and right now and letting our moments be enough for us? It's a balancing between control and not control, between working a process and trying to hold on to some sort of outcome. It just doesn't work that way. Because we as human beings live in what some have called the tragic gap, the gap between the way things are and the way we think they should be. And we have a powerlessness to try to bring the two together. We're literally living in paradox. That is the human encounter. The human experience is to live in the paradox of these two issues, now and not yet. Heaven, earth, control, not control. To live that way and not try to resolve the paradox, the contradiction, but learning to balance these seeming opposites and find as you do the unity of both of them, which are two halves of the whole of our human experience. So when we read apocalyptic literature, despite the horrific imagery we see there, despite the horrific imagery we see as we watch our 24-hour news cycle, right? And maybe the horrific imagery of our own life experience, can we still find hope and encouragement and trust? Can we find hope and trust in a change of direction that we're looking for in the not yet? Can we look for hope and trust in the fulfillment of God's tenayim, his promise, that we will be returned to unity? We will not be left abandoned. This is the secret of life. Because until we can do that, we will be living in fear. We will not be free. We will not be living the abundant life that Jesus has for us. Okay, I threw a bunch of stuff at you. If you didn't hear anything else in this message, please hear this, okay? Forget all that other stuff. Just hear this. As scary as the world can sometimes be, as scary as Scripture can sometimes be, if we're afraid of God, if that is the sum total of our experience and our learning, then we don't know God. And we don't trust God. Because if God is who Jesus says he is, then we needn't worry. He's got our backs. And if God is not who Jesus said he is, we needn't worry because he has no power. Either way, we needn't worry. A God who can't love as Jesus loved is not God. And we don't need to be afraid of a God who is not God. And we don't need to be afraid of a God who is love. In other words, we don't need to be afraid. And if you say it's the world that you fear and not God, then spend more time in silence and solitude and God's presence. And you'll find that you still 
don't need to be afraid. And then you will finally understand the meaning of end times. Let's pray. Father, there is so much going on. It's just spinning our heads around. Help us to simplify. Help us to return to our first love. Help us to return to our roots, to the simplicity of pure presence that we had as children. Help us to return to that now in the complexity of the adult world, in the complexity and seeming unraveling of the world around us. Help us to find that singular peace, just connection with you. That's what we want to guide us, Lord. But we need to be present to it so that we can see what love requires. Help us in that one thing, Father. Help us to turn away from all the things that divide and confuse and come back to the one thing that brings us all together. And never let us forget we can only love because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.